0: If you have your Bibles, open them to Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah 1, you can probably guess who my human of the Bible is, Um, Nehemiah chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these on the floor around you, it's page 333, Nehemiah is a little tricky to find, it's in the Old Testament, it's after 1st and 2nd Chronicles and then Ezra, but if you get to Psalm, you've gone too far, that's the best, uh, if you have your own Bible with you, that's the best uh, help I can give you. Uh, my name is Steve Wall, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thanks, Paul, for the introduction. Um, thanks for being here. On his first Sunday back, he chose to come to the Carmel campus, and I feel so, uh, so humbled by that. So I'm glad that you're here. Um, I wonder if you've ever had a task that seemed so big and so overwhelming, you just weren't sure that you were even the right person to try to get it done. You know, is it like something that in your heart you really wanted to do, you saw a need, you knew it had to be done, but once you dug in, you didn't really know if you had what it took to get it finished? When we launched this Carmel campus five years ago, uh, it seemed like a natural thing, as Paul said, to do. Our Noblesville campus was bursting at the seams. We were running three services, but we could never quite get the times right. It was always one of those things where we'd have an 830 service that nobody would come to, so we'd make it a little bit later, but then that put the last service at noon, and nobody wanted to come to church at noon, and so we'd always have two really well-attended service and one with about 30 people in it, you know, and so we got to do something, and we knew, as Paul mentioned, that like building a bigger auditorium wasn't really the thing for us, not because mega churches are bad. There's, there's plenty of them in Hamilton County. They're great churches, but it just wasn't us. You know, we were more, I think, more relational than that and felt like we really needed to maintain uh, the size, and, and we wanted to keep our Sunday gatherings manageable and not um, so that you couldn't know anybody in your church. We knew we wanted to go to Carmel, but we also knew that that can be a financial challenge. There's not a lot of spaces available around here, but when the right facility became available for the right price, and made financial sense. Uh, we knew that was what God had for us. But then we had to put the task list together. Everything that had to happen uh, to launch a new campus, and it has all the things you expect on there, building walls and laying carpet and buying microphones, but then there's other stuff, countless tasks that maybe you don't think about all the time. Uh, applying for sign permits, which can be a challenge in Carmel, quite frankly. Uh, filling the water softener and replacing those little... Uh, cakes that make the urinals smell good, (laughs) which by the way, they should not call those cakes. Oh, man. (laughs) The truth is that all of us have a God-given task in front of us. We may not recognize it, we may not want to admit it, but we probably all have some task that God has called us to, some need that we see in the world that we think somebody's got to fulfill that somebody's got to do that somebody's got to make that happen and we don't always recognize at first that maybe God's calling us to do it because we don't have the skill we don't have the ability we don't have the background we don't have the knowledge but maybe God's got something for you that is a God-sized task that you're going to have to rely on him or else it's not going to get done and with that task comes a list some kind of list no matter what task is in front of us maybe uh, maybe it's raising kids you want to raise your kids to know and love Jesus and man that can be a task uh, maybe it's uh, growing in your own walk with Christ and thinking about, okay, what do I got to do? If I'm going to grow in my walk with Jesus, what am I going to do? Maybe it's giving up a habit or starting a new one. Uh, maybe it's starting a new ministry. And we can have a tendency sometimes to look at that list and throw up our hands, can't we? It's, it's too hard. It'll take too long. Uh, we don't know how to do something. We don't know how to do some things on that list. Uh, we can't do it alone, and it can make us want to give up. Well, we're in this series called Humans of the Bible. You probably know that what we're doing is we're looking at different people from the Bible and telling their stories and recognizing that these aren't characters in some kind of storybook, that they're real people with real stories, and their stories can speak into our stories. And I just want to say this in light of the political uh, events over the last couple weeks, that if you read through the Bible, what you see is a variety of people from different backgrounds, different countries, different races, different ethnic backgrounds, males and females, and God uses all the people, all of the people, to accomplish his task. I think when we get to heaven, many of us, we're going to be surprised how non-white heaven is. We're going to get there and we're going to go, oh, this is what he meant by every tribe, every tongue, every nation, worshiping together. I'm excited for that day. But we're in this story called Humans of the Bible, and the human I want to talk about today is a man named Nehemiah. You probably guessed that. We're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to tell his story and uh, look at how he accomplished this big God-sized task that God put before him. So Nehemiah 1.1 1, 1 starts like this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Man, that is just the introduction, but that, there's a lot there. First of all, this is how you can tell that the Bible is true, that it's history, that fairy tales start with once upon a time, right? They don't start with something like in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Uh, Just so you know, Kislev is the third month in the Hebrew calendar. It occurs right around November, December timeframe currently. He's in the 20th year. He's talking about the 20th year reign of King Artaxerxes, uh, which we'll talk more about him in a minute. Uh, King Artaxerxes took power in 465 B.C., Um, historical fact. So this happened in November, December 445 BC. Uh, Time after time in scripture, we see these descriptions like this that don't start with once upon a time. By the way, there's no doubt in the minds of historical scholars that Nehemiah was a real man who was a real contemporary of Ezra and a real contemporary of Artaxerxes. And historians, even secular historians agree that the best description we have of his life is found right here in our Bible in scripture. Um, And so it goes on. Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So what you need to know is this is from an era we know as the Babylonian exile. And about 100, uh, the people of Babylon uh, held the uh, Israelites as uh, slaves, as captives. They were exiled to their their area, their region, which includes part of modern-day Iran, uh, which is where Susa is. Uh, But about a hundred years before this story takes place, uh, the Jews were released to go back home. And so many had made their homes in Babylon, and they didn't really consider Jerusalem home anymore, so some of them stayed behind. But then a few years before this book takes place, we see Ezra, who is a priest, he leads a large group of exiles back to Jerusalem. This is probably the group that Nehemiah is asking about, the group that Ezra led back home. And so, uh, or, so Nehemiah's never lived there, but he's got family, he's got relatives, he's got ancestors that are buried in Jerusalem. So he's got this tie to this homeland. Uh, they said to me, the people he asked, verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So, Nehemiah is really bothered by the fact that these people that have gone back home to kind of restart this homeland of his are are in trouble. They're they're in danger, they're in disgrace, uh, and it becomes his all consuming passion. And the question for you today is do you have an all consuming passion? Is there something that God's laid on your heart that you know, you may not feel like you're the right person to do it, but you're the only one you know that's really passionate about it, or you're the one you know that's most passionate about it. That's what this became for Nehemiah. For you, maybe it's a particular ministry. Maybe it's a particular country. Maybe it's, uh, you know, your kids, raising your kids to know and love Christ. Maybe it's a particular school or a specific neighborhood. Well, Nehemiah was passionate about Jerusalem and about the people who were, had been in exile, who went back home and were now in danger. And he knows he's got to do something about this. And so Nehemiah has this task. He has this idea that he's got to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. He's got to protect those people. And that this will be the foundation for rebuilding the entire city. And so he's got this big task in front of him. Now, here's the question. How did Nehemiah go about his task? How did Nehemiah, this guy who, let's face it, he had this huge God-given task. And it's not really one he was prepared for. We find out later that his job was he was cupbearer to the king. So his job, uh, Nehemiah's job in King Artaxerxes' house, was to bring the wine to the king, to taste it first, to make sure it wasn't poison, and hand him the cup. Not really the best preparation for leading a crew of construction workers, right? It's kind of like having your degree in finance and becoming a pastor. Um, <laughs> so how does this seemingly daunting task, uh, how does Nehemiah able to accomplish this seemingly daunted task? Well, I've included four ways in your notes, and if you want to follow along, you can do that. The first thing that we'll see is he prayed. Nehemiah prayed. For Nehemiah, we'll see that every step of this journey starts with prayer. Go back to verse four. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant who's praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And so what we see Nehemiah starting with is this prayer, but it's a prayer of repentance. He's saying, I haven't followed your decrees, Lord. My family hasn't followed your decrees. I'm sorry about that. He knows that this great work of God starts with repentance. And for us, uh, we need to understand that God will never bless sin. And so if we're trying to accomplish something great for his name, but we're caught in a pattern of sin, or we've got something in our lives that we haven't cleaned out completely, uh, God's going to recognize that. If you want God's blessing, you have to repent. And that's what Nehemiah does first. And then he goes on in this prayer. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That's something that God told to Moses and it's now happened. Uh, The Israelites are scattered among the nations. But if you return to me, God had promised Moses, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, Nehemiah says, and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And this man he's talking about uh, is the king. Just think about the importance of prayer for Nehemiah. I mean, you'll see this if you read the whole book, and I encourage you to do that this week. If you go read the whole book, you'll see almost before every major decision, before every major conversation, he starts with prayer. And if it's important for Nehemiah, shouldn't prayer be important for you too? If you want to accomplish something great, you need to start with prayer. We see uh, our best model for this is in Jesus. Jesus, 33 separate occasions in the New Testament, we see Jesus going away to pray. He, He prayed before choosing the 12 apostles. He prayed before feeding the 5,000. He prayed all night before he walked on water. And he spent most of his last night on earth praying. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. He prayed that the Lord would take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. If Jesus needed to pray to his father that much, how much more do we need to pray? And especially if we want to accomplish something great in his name. But Nehemiah didn't just pray. The second thing he did was he prepared he prepared. Nehemiah uh, 2 starts like this. In the month of Nisan, uh, in the 20, that's not the same Nisan that we know. Um, no driving in that time. 445 BC. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, that's his job. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. Man, what a great opportunity for Nehemiah. Uh, to start a conversation, isn't it? He said, uh, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Watch this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Big ask, really big ask. This is the guy that the king trusts to bring him his cup, to t- taste his wine, to make sure it's not poison. He's going to be gone for an extended period of time. That is a big ask of Nehemiah, but he's prayed for God's favor. Um, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? Uh, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now, but Nehemiah wasn't satisfied with a big ask because he knows that he's not going to be able to accomplish this task on his own. And so he was prepared. He says, I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will keep me safe or give, provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah and may have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel uh, by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Notice that Nehemiah does not attribute his success to his own charisma or his own ability to ask, but he says, because the hand of my God was on me, because I prayed, the the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Man, look at all the preparation that went in even before Nehemiah made the ask. I don't know why sometimes we think that when we pray, the job is done. Maybe it's because in most of our greatest endeavors, the times where we accomplish the most, God does all the heavy lifting. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But in many cases, he asks for some buy-in for us, like, Kind of like an ante in poker uh, in the form of preparation. Just look back through scripture and you see this pattern. Uh, God sent the ram, but Abraham had to carry the wood up the hill. God parted the sea, but Moses had to raise his staff. God saved Nineveh, but Jonah had to go preach. God sent the rain, but Elisha had to dig the trenches. And a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how God transformed Paul's life and purpose, but Paul had to be obedient first time and time again, we see that God blesses preparation. Now, this is not God helps those who help themselves. Uh, This is a don't bother asking God if you're not willing to do your part. It's like the man who fell on hard times. He lost his job. He was on the verge of bankruptcy. His house was in the early stages of foreclosure. He didn't know where to turn. But one day he was walking by the church where he used to attend, where he, he grew up, hadn't been there in years and years and years. And he decides, you know, what the heck, I don't have anything to lose. So he walks in and, uh, and he sits in one of the pews and he starts to pray and he pours out his heart to God. And finally it just strikes him this, this uh, great moment of inspiration. He says, God, help me to win the Powerball this weekend. And so he walks away thinking job done and Saturday comes and he doesn't hit the Powerball and He's getting a little more desperate, and so on Monday, he goes back into the church, and he sits there and prays, and he says, God, I don't know if you heard me before, but I'm in desperate situation. I need you to come through. If you're real, if you're there, help me to win the Powerball on Wednesday night. Wednesday night drawing comes, and no win. He goes back on Saturday morning again, and he's desperate. They're about ready to foreclose on his house, and he says, God, I don't know if you heard me the first two times, and the ceiling parts open. And the clouds part and a big beam of light comes down and this voice from heaven comes down and says to the man, buy a ticket. (laughs) It doesn't make a difference how much we pray if we're not willing to do the preparation. If you're not willing to... Uh, if you're not willing to prepare for what you're asking God for, he's not going to be able to bless that. It's like this. Uh, there's several of us in this room who are running a marathon or a half marathon coming up in November. 43 of us. In fact, if you're, if you're signed up for Team World Vision, raise your hand. Look at all these great people that are running a marathon or half marathon to bring clean water to people in Africa, uh, which, by the way, if you're not running, there's a lot of you in the room not running, uh, go to teamworldvision.org today and search Genesis Church, and look at that list of people, and pray for them, and if the Lord tells you to, uh, pick somebody on that list, and donate 50 bucks, and help somebody get clean water. Uh, They would love that. For those of you running, you have a plan in front of you. You have a plan that World Vision has given you, that's supposed to help you get to the starting line, ready to run this marathon. Don't look at that plan for the next 12 weeks, and then show up on race morning, and pray, Lord, help me to have a great race, God's going to say, what about your preparation? What about what you're supposed to do? Better off to pray, God, help me to please still be able to walk tomorrow. You've got to prepare. Preparation and prayer make great teammates. They're like the John Stockton and Carl Malone of accomplishing great things. Too old? Uh, They're like the... (laughs) It's football season anyway. They're like the Peyton Manning and Jeff Saturday of accomplishing great things. They work really well together. Uh, So Nehemiah thought through what it was going to take, he prayed, and he prepared, and then there was another key to accomplishing his great success. Let's go on, verse 10, Nehemiah 2.10. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, uh, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This is our first clue that in his great endeavor for God, Nehemiah is going to face some opposition. In your great endeavor for God, you will face opposition as well. Why? Nehemiah faced opposition because he was living in a strange land. His family was Jewish, but he was living in Susa, which, as I said, was part of modern-day Iran. He probably didn't look like the people there. He didn't fit in. People around him didn't know what to think. He didn't like the same things that they liked. He didn't value the same things. He didn't pursue the same things. When you live in a place you don't belong, you will automatically face opposition. By the way, did you know if you're a Christian, you don't belong here? This is not your home. The Bible says that you are citizens of heaven and that you are here temporarily living here on earth. You may be living on earth here and now, but this is not your home. That there is a better place waiting for you when you're done. And the citizens of this earth may think you're crazy. They may not understand the things that you're pursuing and the things that you value, the things that you find important. But the best model we have for how to live as a foreigner is Jesus himself. How's this for a description? Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. If you're facing opposition, Jesus knows what you're experiencing and he walks with you every awkward step of the way. But Nehemiah wasn't just a foreigner, he faced opposition for another reason, too. Uh, What we see in this story is that he had an enemy, actually enemies. Sambalat and Tobiah, along with others, didn't want his work to succeed. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we see this. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, that's a lot of enemies, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. When you start to make progress, your enemy is going to get angry and try to attack the work that you've already done. Nehemiah had enemies that were determined to stop the good work that he was doing. By the way, did you know that you have an enemy too? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a very real enemy, a very powerful enemy. Not an all-powerful enemy, but a very real and powerful enemy who will stop at nothing to get you to put your work down and forget it. He'll do whatever it takes to disrupt distress or destroy your ministry, your family, or you. And you know as we celebrate 5 years at this campus, we can't help but look back and look at how this our enemy tried very hard this year to bring down our church, or at least bring down this campus. And in some ways we're still feeling the effects of a spiritual attack that happened on our staff this spring. And I know many people in this room have forgiven Uh, moved on forgotten or weren't even affected by it but there are still some who are dealing with the consequences and will be for for months and years to come we have a very real enemy and that's why it's so critical for us to be on the lookout for opposition the bible says that sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you but you must rule over it if you give the enemy a foothold he'll shove his whole leg in there and so what did Nehemiah do in the face of this opposition? What we see is he refused to stop. He refused to stop. Nehemiah 4:16 says from that day on half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armors. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Nehemiah didn't stop, and you shouldn't stop either. And so whether your task is raising, qu- raising your kids, don't quit. Don't give up. There's a lot of people that are going to give up on your kids. You can't be one of them. If your task is making disciples, don't quit. If your task is a certain ministry or neighborhood or school and you're, you're facing opposition, don't quit. It's easy to give in. It's so easy to conform to culture, to stop fighting this, this tidal wave of bad influences out there and just go with the flow. But you can't. When your enemy is attacking, you need to fight back, but you also need to remember when you keep your sword at your side that the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world, but they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The Lord has given you every protection and every weapon that you need to fight against your enemy, but it's so easy. It's so easy just to let our guard down, to give in and watch that television show that we know is vulgar and sexual, but everybody's talking about it, and I don't want to feel left out when I'm at work tomorrow. It's real easy to just listen to that music, to visit that website, to just, just flirt a little. I mean, it really doesn't want to hurt anybody, but we can't give in, not even for a minute. In fact, it's probably good to look back at how this whole thing started for Nehemiah with this prayer of repentance, In chapter 1, he said, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And for some of us right now, our our takeaway from the service today, our our one thing that we need to know is that we need to get on our knees before the Lord. And we need to say, God, I'm sorry. And we need to turn from our sin and, and not... Do those things again, not look at those things again, not go to those places again, not see that person again, to, to unsheath those divine weapons and start taking down strongholds in our life so that your enemy cannot have you, but you can rule over him. That's what Nehemiah did. And in fact, he used this one phrase that's so powerful. I just want to give you this as a gift. It's something that, again, as I've looked over at this story over the last couple of weeks, I've used this a couple of times, and I want to give it to you to use too. Uh, Nehemiah 6, we see this. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. They're trying to draw him down. They're trying to lure him down away from his work. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with them reply. This is it. This is the the sentence that you can use. I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Nehemiah refused to stop the good work that he was doing in the name of the Lord. So he prayed, he prepared, he refused to stop. But that wasn't all. When the work was done, what did Nehemiah do? Well, he celebrated. He celebrated. Nehemiah 8 says Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and all the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks maybe pretzel day there too, Uh, (laughs) and send some to, I I couldn't say that last week at Noblesville because they didn't have pretzels. Uh, This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You've probably heard that phrase and didn't know where it came from. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And whenever we accomplish something great, we need to take time and celebrate, and not to celebrate our goodness or our good works or the things that we've done, but celebrate what God, the Lord Almighty, has done for us, and that's what we're doing today at the Carmel campus. We've, we've had five great years of ministry, but we haven't done it alone. In fact, you guys have sacrificed so much to get us where we, were, where we are today. As Paul said, 120, 130 uh, of the best and brightest from Noblesville came over here to start this, and this spring we averaged about 370 in attendance We had 580 people at this campus over Easter weekend. But those aren't the numbers I get most excited about. Over 150 people serve on a team here at the Carmel campus. That's more than we had come to start this campus in the first place. We have over 100 people in connection groups. And in the last five years, we have baptized 88 people right here. And and we're going to do some more in a couple weeks. The Lord is on the move. He's on the move. And so I want to thank you today uh, for the work that you've been doing. And we're going to celebrate just a couple of stories today. What I want to do is um, I just want to share with you four different stories of people who have been here since about the time that we launched this campus and what the Lord has been doing in their life and what you as a community, Genesis Church, have meant to these four families. Take a look at this.
1: Kyle Howe.
0: I'm Brooke. We've been at Genesis for about five years.
1: Since 2012. Mm -hmm. Hello, I'm Randy Graham and this is my wife Beth. And we've been coming to Genesis Carmel for five years. I'm Regan Pimentel. And I'm Kevin Pimentel. Uh, We found Genesis through uh, my old boss. His name was John Casey and we decided to come check it out. We're the Neelys. I'm Dewan. And I'm Amy. We've been going to Genesis Church for just over four years now. Our neighbors, Dan and Katie Knuth, invited us to come to Genesis. God's been teaching me lately um, to listen more to him. I've always prayed to God. Um, Can't say that I have really always took the time or I thought I would really listen for what he had to say in response to my prayers. Now he's given me the courage to do what I'm hearing.
0: Uh, the longer we've been here with Genesis, uh,
1: just, I know more recently he's been pushing us to desire to learn more, to be in the Word more, um, and to understand Him more, uh, especially with uh, the birth of our son. He's really got us focused on creating that, uh, creating a better environment and a good environment Uh, to raise him in and uh, we're seeing we're seeing God work um, as we watch him grow every day and and we think about the future for him. And there's a lot been going on lately. Um, Most recently we felt the call to become foster parents and it took us a while to get there to actually, like we were talking about earlier, to discern God's voice, we felt the call, but it took us a while to actually, you know, be faithful.
0: This has been probably the first time as, like, my walk with the Lord that, like, I've totally surrendered um, to Him and obeyed, and
1: um, it has, it's been amazing to see how He, um, I don't know, just the peace that I feel from it all, even though it's a circus and such chaotic mess sometimes in the house. I don't know, it Just it's, it's good to feel that and, and know um, that we're doing His will and um, that He will continue to provide as long as we keep obeying what He has for us. Genesis to us uh, has really meant a lot to our family over the last five years. It's really been the toughest (laughs) five years of our uh, both of our individual lives and our lives together. Now we've been involved in Spring Hill and the men's discipleship group and the marriage course. And through it all, it's just really been home and a community to us that we really never expected it to even be when we started up here. It's the only church I've ever felt comfortable in. I went to a lot of churches growing up and as soon as we found Genesis, it was like, this this is home. Being a part of Genesis Church here at Carmel over the last five years, um, you've all became my family and I love you very much. Uh, this is uh, a part of my life that I cannot do without. Um, I've never been to a church where I felt so much love from so many people. It's a great place to be part of. Like, I feel like it's been life-changing. I don't know where we would be if it really wasn't for Genesis. It's like our first time being, like, a
0: for real, like, personal relationship with the Lord.
1: I mean, we we came to know the Lord here. This is the first time, like she said, that we've actually had a real personal connection. And, you know, through Genesis, we were able to... Nurture that. We talked about earlier. I'm like, we kind of are, you know, Genesis mission, helping people find their way back to God. We kind of, we are that. Happy Happy anniversary, Happy anniversary, Genesis Carmel. Happy anniversary, Genesis Carmel. Happy Anniversary Genesis Genesis Carmel! Carmel. Happy Happy Anniversary anniversary, Genesis Carmel. Carmel!